you know, you can roughly break up emergent into early, middle, and late. And in early emergent, a good indicator of where you are on the emergent part of things is how many companies are actively trying to go commercialize the thing that you have just created. If it's like one to two, then you're early emergent. If it's, you know, three up through 10, then you're mid emergent. And late emergent might have 10, might have 50, might have 100 companies all competing. Um, and then basically at the end of late emergent, then what happens is a subset of these companies that have been working in the emergent space figure out how to really make some money. And then as they're making that money, they go and put everybody else out of business. This is a presentation by Tom Chi on understanding investment. Tom is the co-founder of GoogleX, pioneers an approach to rapid prototyping and data-driven design, and currently focuses on investing in and building up projects that become net positive to nature. He gave this talk to participants of Foresight's Healing the Planet technical competition, which he co-chaired. He covers industry stages from not possible to industry decay, discusses what capitalizing cool versus hot means, different investor types from angels to corporate VC to seed and series A to D, to why companies fail and how to avoid common pitfalls that blow up your company. You get the main ideas from just listening, but if you want the graphs and figures corresponding to this talk, watch it on YouTube instead. I have to go do office hours for an online course that I teach at 10, so this will definitely end on time or earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah, very briefly, uh, why am I teaching this thing? So I started out as a research scientist. I was an astrophysicist. It was my first job. And then I did a bunch of engineering, and then I got into tech, and I was an executive, all these sorts of things, and always very skeptical about the people that were uh, like on the financial side, because I was like, can't trust those people. And then eventually I like was trying to get a bunch of this hard stuff commercialized. I was like, oh, no, we need their money. <laughs> so I need to understand them. And then eventually I was like, nobody understands it, so I need to become one. So anyway, that's what's going on now. I, I, I'm launching a venture fund, and I've done a bunch of investments over the last seven years. And this is my understanding of, of how investment comes in. And I'm going to do um, a lot more focus on early stage stuff because... You guys are doing really hard stuff at the early stage, even though there's plenty to talk about in all the different stages. So which, what is here is like a kind of um, a schematic graph of all industries. So there's a point in time where a thing has not even been invented yet. So the size of the industry is zero. There's, a, there's kind of a phase that takes a little bit of time that, uh, where the, the technology or capability or industry is emergent. So it's just like you're going from it's not possible to we believe it's possible, and we're developing that possibility into something that might be commercially viable. And then there's a relatively short time period, oftentimes a, a window that might just be a year, maybe up to five years, where that industry grows tremendously. And after that point, then it reaches maturity, and it might be in maturity for you know, a decade or 100 years even. And there will then be an endpoint where the thing is disrupted or something else uh, goes and interrupts this, this relatively stable state of maturity and it goes into decay. And all four cycles will happen to every single industry that you have ever experienced. You can think about anything that you have in your life and it's at one of the points in this cycle. Now the types of capital 
that makes sense to go into uh, these different stages is largely dependent on the stage that an industry is in. So over here, this is basically the entire capital landscape of all the different types of capital that you might get for anything and which sort of players would be participating at those points. So like later on when you are at maturity or dying, then that's when private equity comes in to go carve stuff up or restructure things. You know, debt is a thing that exists all throughout. As long as there's something to collateralize your debt with, you can say, hey, we'll give you 10% on your money, right? Like whatever, we'll give you 10% per year on your money. Venture capital basically comes in with the promise of, we'll give you 10x on your money, but you're obviously coming in earlier in, and there may not be anything that, that asset backs the, the money that's coming in. And then grants are basically there uh, kind of foundationally to go from, we don't know if it's possible to it is possible. And then there's also this kind of uh, flip point between venture capital and at the IPO, I, IPO point, then the money tends to be raised in public shares or debt after that point. I'm going to go really fast so that there's more time for questions at the end. Okay, so relative to getting a, a new difficult thing off the ground, the most important part is this very early emergent part. So we're zooming in on the emergent part of things. And if you kind of think like way at the beginning, there's basic research. We don't even know if this can work yet. We might be doing the basic scientific research, uh, the basic discovery to go say like, oh, this is a possibility now. And clearly you can't build a business yet if you, if you don't even know if it basically works. But right at the point that the tech begins to work, and I saw yesterday a lot of things that are certainly at the point where the tech is working at some level, then you can start asking yourself, does it make sense to do any type of commercialization here? And in the emergent, you know, you can roughly break up emergent into early, middle, and late. And in early emergent, a good indicator of where you are on the emergent part of things is how many companies are actively trying to go commercialize the thing that you have just created. If it's like one to two, then you're early emergent. If it's, you know, three up through 10, then you're mid-emergent. And late emergent might have 10, might have 50, might have 100 companies all competing. Um, and then basically at the end of late emergent, then what happens is a subset of these companies that have been working the emergent space figure out how to really make some money. And then as they're making that money, they go and put everybody else out of business, either by acquiring them, uh, just outgrowing them, or shutting them down. And you'll have this major collapse from maybe 50 companies in late emergent down to maybe three or four by the time you get to maturity. So they'd just be like collapse, collapse, collapse. So basically you can tell right now where you are on this chart if you think about a tech that you're interested in commercializing and asking yourself, are there 10 companies in the space? Is there one company in the space? And you'll know actually what sort of things are capital appropriate capital-wise as a function of just knowing whether you are early, middle, and late emergent. All right, I didn't plug in my thing, so I'm just gonna keep on going back and forth like this. Oh no, it's fine, because I need to point at stuff too. This is great. Oh no, so important concept relative to raising money um, is what I call capitalizing cool versus capitalizing hot. Now usually what I tell folks is that if you are emer early emergent, then it actually makes a lot more sense to capitalize cool. What does it mean to capitalize cool? Capitalize cool means take as much non-dilutive capital as possible, 
if you do take dilutive capital, if you are selling part of your company in order to go do this, take small amounts from folks that you know, may not be the big VC firms yet. Because the, the benefit of going cool is it, it allows you to take the time that it takes in order to go figure stuff out. Because during the cool time period, maybe you start exploring a market and you find a customer in three months. Maybe you're exploring a market and it takes you four years to find a customer. And you need that kind of like, if you've only raised half a million dollars from you know, venture capitalists and you have two million in grant funding, that'd be a great example of like a cool mixture. Because like, you know, you know the, the, the venture capitalists are only half a million in. Or maybe you got it from three angel investors and, and they tend to be like more patient anyhow. Because they're just kind of using disposable money. It's not actually, angel investors is not even necessarily really their job to be investors. So it's just kind of like play capital for them. And because of it, it doesn't create, see, whenever you take venture capital, it immediately creates the expectation of this being worth 10 times more within three years. Right? So if you were to take 500K, then you need to go make that worth $5 million. If you take 500K at a $5 million valuation, what you're signing up for is I need to make a $50 million company within three years. So like, if you're not ready for that, then you should not go capitalize you know, hotter and hotter there. And of course, if you take $50 million, that sounds great, but now you need to go make, you know, a, um, well, if you, make, if you raise $50 million on a uh, $200 million valuation, and you basically signed up to making a $2 billion company within, you know, three to five years. So if you're not ready for that, do not capitalize hot. Now, there are points in time where that totally makes sense, because you'll notice there's this relationship between where you are early, middle, late, emergent, versus how you capitalize. And you guys remember those numbers from before. There's one or two players. There might be three to 10 players. There's 10 plus players. Just recently, you know, uh, Lyft went public. Uber is going public. These are the folks that won, and they're going into the mature phase. But if we scoot back five years ago, there was a bunch of players like um, Sidecar, and th there was like 10 players easily in this kind of... Um, you know, on-demand taxi service space. And there's a point in time when Lyft basically saw that Uber was pulling ahead and they decided to capitalize really hot. And they went and took in billions of dollars because there was this tiny time window before the stuff was about to hit growth. And that's a perfect strategy when you're about to go hit growth phase. The folks that didn't take a billion dollars, we don't even remember their names now. Even though there was more than 10 services about five years ago, you don't even remember them now because they didn't capitalize hot during a time period where the window really, really was speeding up. But this is why I'm saying you want to go use that first sensibility. You first, you want to index into how many, um, how many competitors are in this field and how, how quickly is this market heating up. If it's heating up real fast, then you might want to capitalize hot. If it is more like a lot of early stage research and it's kind of slow, and you don't know who's even going to buy the thing, and it might be a slow B2B sale and all these sorts of things, then I would recommend capitalizing cool. All right. Now, how to understand investors. Um, founders are very uh, you know, fixated on valuation. Investors mostly care about allocation, which is what percentage of their company you own, uh, of, your, of your company they own. Uh, then there's a bunch of different investor types and like slightly different archetypes of what they care about based on that. And then, of course, there are folks that are friendly and aggressive, and then the type of governance they bring. These are the major 
uh, categories of things to think about when you're working with an investor. Now, allocation is kind of the main thing. And because basically as a function of allocation, an investor basically takes on a different role in your company. If they own zero to four percent of your company, well, they, they own part of your company, but they're basically tagging along and dragging along. And what that means is if the larger group of owners makes a decision about the future governance or direction of the company, that investor tends not to have any dominating stake to go change that course. So they get dragged along. It's like, oh, well, now we want to split into two companies. Like, well, I guess I'm getting dragged along into that. Oh, now we want to pivot over to here. I guess I'm getting dragged along into that. I only own 2%. And there's other folks that own 30%. So if they want you to go that direction, I'm just getting dragged along. So you can see how much allocation affects the character of how a investor gets to play in this game. You know, five is because drag along, tag along means that you may not even be at the table as the thing is discussed. You just get pinged by the lawyer later on and said, hey, by the way, this was decided. You need to sign these documents. You're like, okay. Um, five to nine, it says present. And what that means is you at least get to be in the room while it's discussed. It doesn't mean that you have any dominating ability to go change the course of that discussion, but you'll at least get to say some stuff. And you won't be surprised by some documents in the mail. You would just, um, you know, uh, yes. When you have 10 to 29%, then you are one of the major forces that is governing the company with others. If you have 30 to 49%, that's a commanding stake. And 50% is a uh, dominating stake. It's like you can fully steer the company by yourself as an investor if you want. Now, different investors have different positions that they want to take. You know, if pri private equity wants to come in and buy your company, they are going to get an, an owning stake. And then they're going to move the stuff exactly how they want. If a angel investor, you know, is just excited about your area and they want to, you know, follow along with all the great developments that you're doing, they might aim to have a 1% stake in your company, a 2% stake in your company. That's fully appropriate for the sort of role that they want to have. And then a lot of venture investors kind of come in in between where it's like, hey, I'm governing. I want there to be other co-investors because... You, you aren't our only investment, but we want to have a substantial win if you, if you succeed as well. So as you raise money for your thing, you also want to think about what's the mix of influences that I want to have. And I think early on, you typically don't want to have any players that have commanding or owning stakes. Um, you may not even want a co-governing stake early on because there may just be so much flex in where you might go unless you feel like that co-governing stake is a very benevolent stake, like that's a type of investor who's very much motivated to help you discover and do great for that market. And then here's all these investor types. That's way too much, too many words. So if you want to go read this later, you should just take a photo. But um, there are angels, which are indi regular individuals that have personal values and they invest based on those personal values. And they don't need their, the stake to go pan out. Actually, most angel investors are like, I expect to lose all of my money. And that's totally fine. Um, no, but they get to be along on the ride for all these exciting things. And if you've made some money, like <coughs> excitement is the thing that you pay for. Um, angel list, so like syndicates broadly. So angel list is one of the biggest syndicate clearing houses. But this is basically many accredited investors coming in to be able to do somewhat larger investments through a special purpose uh, vehicle. And they, they'll tend to have a slightly larger check size than angels, and they'll be managed by a general manager or whoever's managing your SPV uh, and placing it in there. But um, 
it's an important part of the landscape. Corporate uh, venture capital is a whole kind of thing, which is uh, there'll be corporations that corporate venture capital typically doesn't even try to make money. So it, it's a really unusual type of incentives. Like most corporate venture capital is just a way of a big corporation uh, keeping their finger on the pulse of all the innovative developments that are happening in a space. So they do it as kind of a precursor to acquisition. And if you don't want to be acquired, you may not want to take corporate VC. Um, and there are some that have a slightly different flavor to them, but a lot of them are not really focused on making money or necessarily even supporting your company that well, but really more just like this is a guard against us being disrupted because we're surveying the entire space all the time with a little bit of capital. Then there's seed funders, series AB funders, series CD funders. The entire right-hand side is professional venture capital firms. And uh, you know, seed A slash B, C slash D are basically different stages which represent different you know, check sizes effectively. And then I put in parentheses a number of firms that might classify under each one of those, um, those stages. Did you leave it up for Oh, shoot. There you go. Go ahead and take a photo real quick. Yeah, all of that correlates to something super practical. So, you know, you have these different types of investors and you can see the amounts that they might be investing are going up, the allocations that they would be aiming for also going up. And then Angel's got a hope and a dream because they're coming in super early and they can only put in 20K and hopefully you become 100X, but almost all that goes to zero. But it's fine. It was fun. And then um, it's good. And then, you know, seed funds and all these other folks have slightly different expectations. If you're coming in and you're putting, like, I don't know, 400 million into Twitter as a Series D contributor, you don't expect 100x from that. That's just not realistic. So as you get to these larger check sizes, they also have a different uh, expectation on return. And then this is also just a word salad, but here's a bunch of things that friendly people will do. And here's a bunch of things that aggressive people will do. Now, aggressive does not necessarily mean evil, but there is some correlation between it as well. So, Because um, sometimes a person is aggressive and they're exactly the sort of person that you want with you. And you're like, no, this is going to be a great partnership. And like, yes, you, you want to own more of my company next round. But that's great because you are the absolute best investor that I want to work with going forward. And that can work. A lot of times it's not like that. Those folks just have policies to, that are aggressive because they want to have commanding ownership or they want to have a lot of option value. Uh, they want to have a crazy liquidation preference, which means if your thing goes bad, even if it goes well, they, are t they take more off the table than everybody else. They want to get special discounts on subsequent rounds. These are all just ways of bargaining so they can make more money. Um, and you should be a little careful when people are coming with aggressive terms there are a number of companies where I hear about the terms of their round and I'm like, oh, you're definitely going out of business then. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, it sounds great because you just brought in $8 million. It's like, no, no, based on your terms, you're definitely going out of business. And it's like you can literally just end your company by taking money. Uh, so it just depends on how people do this. I always try to be very on the friendly side because it's already hard to work with scientists and engineers while well, you also got to be mean. That's crazy. And then um, lastly is governance. So we get the wrong impression from the world of like, you know, uh, like if you get an MBA or whatever, you get the wrong impression on what business is about where it's like, oh, it's about competition and SWOT analysis and 
red ocean, blue ocean strategies. And when it comes to startups, that's, that's never the main thing. Startups basically never go out of business because of competition. Startups mainly go out of business because they run out of cash, but they have some sort of intractable relationship issue. And that relationship issue might be between two founders. It might be between a founder and investor. It might be between you know, uh, the founder and the board. And it's like, yeah, it's those sorts of issues that basically blow up the company. And it, it's only one of those two. And actually, relationship issues are a lot higher than you think. You think it's going to be like, oh, it's mostly they run out of money. That's it. It's like, no, it's more like 50-50. Like half the time you got a business out because of a relationship issue, and half the time you got a business because you ran out of money. And given that, like, you really need to go focus on quality governance. And early on, I noticed this a lot with people that have a science or engineering background. They don't know how to put together a good board. And these are basically some things that you should look for for, for board members. Instead, they'll be like, oh, well, you seem really interested in the company. Why don't you become you know, a, a, an advisor? Oh, no, you want to join the board? Great, you're on the board. And it's like, uh-oh, that person has no governance experience. You know, uh, Just because they put in money doesn't mean that they have applicable, applicable expertise to the thing that you're trying to create. You know, They might put in money with a very short-term orientation, which leads to bad governance decisions. And then there are a lot of really talented people who are in demand for a lot of boards, uh, but but you know now they're a member of 40 boards and they actually don't have the bandwidth to show up for your company even if they do meet the earlier criteria. All right, so I covered a huge amount of stuff in a short amount of time, and now we're going to do Q and A for 10 minutes, and then I got to do my my office hours. All right. One of the criteria you have for deciding what stage you're in is the number of companies that are in, in this sense. Yes. So often early companies are often, often tend to be in stealth mode, so it's hard to find out about them, how many there are. So what, what, what kind of criteria do you use to, to, to track that down? Oh, it's actually, nothing is really stealth. Like in practice, like you guys are, especially in the science and tough engineering world, you know who your colleagues are. There isn't like some secret university that no one's ever heard of that is doing work that is 10 times better than anybody else. It's like you basically know, okay, the five universities in the world that do good work at this are blah. And if it's going to, you know, if anything is going to come out, it's going to come from one of these five groups or people that have worked at them. That's it. So like, so, and typically word gets around if one of them starts a company, like, it's actually pretty easy to go spider out. Like stealth means nothing. Stealth only means something if you're doing boring ass stuff. Like if you're if you're making like like because people are like, oh, I'm in stealth. I'm making like a new mobile game. You're like, oh, well, whatever, right? It's like then you can be in stealth because nobody even cares to look for your thing. Okay, yes, in the back. So for scientists and uh, academics who are going into this for the first time, what's what do you see as their steepest learning curve as they're going into commercializing? Oof. Yeah, entrepreneurship is like unusually not like science at all. It's like there's, I think if you have a scientific mind, you want to go put everything, you want to characterize everything by like, you know, dependable rules and all that sort of thing. And entrepreneurship is a little bit of an art form and there's a lot of style to it. And there's a, an element of like, you know, charisma and presence and all these sorts of things that I think and when you see that in an entrepreneur, you're like, oh, they got it. But like trying to go explain to a scientist, it's like, well, here, you need this much more charisma. And it's like, oh, this doesn't do anything. Um, so I don't even try to explain that part. It's like, okay, well, 
I mean, if they have it, then I'm like, okay, let's go coach this through a little bit. But if they don't have it, that's not worth explaining. You should just say like, well, you should just say that like, hey, uh, when it comes to the fundraising cycle, then you might want to go pair up with somebody who's better explaining things in the market. And that it's fine to go do that. It's it, it's fine. Like a lot of just business success, period, has to do with successful team formation. So it, it's fine that a person doesn't have all the skills. So you lumped all the grants in, in one category, and I was curious if you had any thoughts on, you know, within that subset, if, um, you know, they also have different expectations of, you know, the impact that they have in short term versus long term, um, and maybe this sort of systematic thinking you apply can be used there. Yeah, I mean, you can zoom into even the very early part and blow that out even more. And there are definitely, you know, uh, foundations and organizations where it's like, hey, every year we just give, you know, X amount of dollars to things that are broadly in this category of things. This is our grant making approach. And others which are very much like, oh, here are all these criteria that you need to hit and like get it all into your application. Now, some of this has to do with, so that's the amount of friction that they are putting between you and the capital. And like you want to go calculate um, how you use your time relative to that. On one hand, the lower friction stuff just sounds better because maybe I can get that capital for lower friction. But on the other hand, sometimes if the, the friction matches the thesis of the type of work that you're doing, you are, your percentage likelihood of getting it and also the percentage likelihood uh, that you know, people would even apply to that. So like you are in a smaller field, like your, your odds might go up pretty significantly. So there's like a whole like strategy around grants as well. Like broadly speaking, you are looking though for sources of non-dilutive funding, because during like the very early stage, like even pre-early emergent, then like their their venture capital is like fully not appropriate because venture capital creates a timeline. Yes. Oops. So do you have any uh, strong feelings one way or the other about SBIRs versus other uh, research uh, grants? Yeah, so I did some work with the NSF SBIR program, and overall, I like the structure of it. I mean, there is some overhead that they that they put in there, but they also don't put crazy restrictions on how the capital is used, and they don't put crazy reporting requirements. There is a thing to go think about in terms of like the folks that are are granting grants, and then they want to go track all these impact metrics from you, because like early on, you can't actually even know or know how to characterize what sort of impact you're going to have. So you might fully sign up for like a grant thing where you're going to fail all its impact metrics and it creates a type of tax on your, your business going on. You know, it's like, oh, well, we need to spend 20% of our energy being able to go produce these things to go communicate with our grant giver. This is highly problematic. So that's the thing I would look out for in terms of the practical overhead. Now, if the type of reporting they're asking for is exactly the stuff you wanted to measure anyhow, and it's like not truly a tax because you're going to have two people on your team do that anyhow, then great. Maybe you are uniquely suited for that grant. Yes? So just a comment, which is, um, I just want to say, the, the soft stuff, the, the judgment stuff you're talking about, like the importance of people and business failure because of people, right on. Um, can't, you are so right. Can't stress that enough. Let me ask you a question, which just kind of wraps off of this one, which is for this group in particular, um, hard, hardcore hardware and nanotechnology faces some unique funding challenges like the GAO, 
yeah. defines the manufacturing valley of death for fundraising for scale-up of non-PC participation. Do you have any insights that you know could address that? It's a different gig than you know, like the the, like, you know, the apps or writers. Oh yeah. No, I mean, the reason I give this presentation is I work in territories that are generally hard to get capital into because I work on hardware and environment and a bunch of things where it's like, oh, that sounds really tough. That's not like two people in Amazon Web Services. That's like you need to build a lab and this lab needs to go execute this and you need to hit these tolerances and then it needs to be manufacturable and then you need to go invest in tooling that would allow it to get to this sort of thing before you even realize any ongoing revenue. Um, or you need to put it out in the ecosystem, and the ecosystem responds in unpredictable ways. So understandably, it's hard to get capital to a bunch of things that, that I invest in. Um, what I'll say is that there is a subset of the investment community that can understand what you are doing. And there's broadly, you know, there's dumb money and smart money. So like smart money are people that actually understand what you're doing and can be actively helpful. And then dumb money is like people where they're in a condition that I call having more money than sense. And like, it sounds funny, but everybody is always in a condition of having more money than sense or more sense than money. And like, whichever one you are, you kind of need the other person. And even if you're a really smart person, like Bill Gates is actually a pretty smart person. Um, but like, you know, once he had like $100 billion, it's like, you have more money than sense, Bill, for sure. You got more money than sense, and as smart as you are. Like that's too much money for one person to actually allocate it well. So what you want to do is if you are a person that has more sense than money, and most people that do really hard technical work have more sense than money, you want to go find the people that are still smart money but have more money than sense. Right? Like I've done a bunch of work with like um, you know, Eric Schmidt related stuff because that's actually a truly brilliant person. But you know, once again, once you get into the billions of dollars, it's like you have more money than sense. So as brilliant as he is, it's like, great, he wants to have like the 10-minute interaction with you, get the general sensibility that you know what you're doing. And he's like, great, well, I got a lot of money, and you have a lot of sense, so here we go. Now, there is like a much smaller network. It's going to be like a tenth of a percent of the overall network of early-stage capital that, that can correctly route things that have you know, a lot more sense than money. And you've got to kind of go discover the nodes in that network that are unique to, you know, oh, who is an investor who does seem to understand this atomic precision stuff that has moved more than $10 million, capital, uh, $10 million of capital in the last couple of years? Okay, great. How do I meet that person and the people in that person's network? Because they'll tend to know other people. This is a world where it's like the number of names to know is like maybe two dozen. And a person that is actually actively in it will know a couple of those two dozen, and then you spider those. And you'll hit as, as many as people are doing this type of investment in the world at, that, at this point in time. Yeah. So let's get Alice in the back. Oh, prototype thinking, yes. I, I teach a course called Prototype Thinking, and it's about how to go uh, rapidly prototype and iterate your ideas toward... Uh, you know, success in the market in the shortest amount of time. That's the thing I'm actually about to hold office hours for. Okay. What do you feel about uh, crowdfunding? And, uh, is there a particular one that you like? Crowdfunding is a total mixed bag because there is an adverse selection issue where a number of people that can't get capital in other ways do it through a crowdfunding mechanism. 
And I've definitely, there's about a half a dozen teams that have approached me after they successfully did their Kickstarter on some hardware. And they told me what they promised. And then I told them, you're out of business. Right? Because, like, um, for better or worse, like, successfully doing a hardware product, uh, even a relatively simple one, is tremendously about cash flow management. And just hearing how much money they got in at what margins and how the cash would need to flow during that time period, there's like a huge unfinanceable gulf in what they've already promised. So, so like that's not a thing that a person who can just like log onto a website and put up a campaign and be like, the dollars are coming in, is really thinking about. And sometimes they can absolutely, and this is why so many hardware Kickstarters never end up existing. They raise the money and then the product is never delivered because most of them do not know a bunch of the the basics about how to go construct the financial operations of that business. And they will absolutely run out of cash. They just don't know that they are dead plus seven months. Right? Like that's how much time like I'll hear their numbers, and I'm like, oh, you're dead in seven months. Like how how what does that mean? And I'll run them through the numbers and they're like, I'm dead in seven months. And it's like, <laughs> yes. Now, if you could go back to your people and write a thing and change the, the terms of the offer, then maybe you can be dead in 11 months, and then we'll take it from there. Right. See, the, 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 so there's equity crowdfunding, and there, then there's just like open-ended crowdfunding. So equity crowdfunding, if you have a number of accredited investors in there, it is better. But then like something like AngelList... Uh, you are coming in for equity. There, it's kind of like crowdfunding-ish, but you still would want to have, you know, a syndicate lead or somebody that is is pretty skilled on the investment side to make sure that the terms of what's being put together can actually work for you. Otherwise, it could completely blow up what's going on. Yeah. Do you have an opinion about PitchBook as a means to find those investors that you talked about? that has some sense and ability uh, to fund hardware startups? So I would just, I mean, however you find your first set of names is totally fine. But it, like the way to uh, evaluate is just ask people, well, what hardware or what you know, difficult science or engineering have you invested in in the last five years? What were the amounts that you came in for? How you know, keen are you on doing more of that? Yeah, you have to identify them to ask them that question. I'm curious if you think PitchBook is one way to get there. Yeah, I mean, like, the, the amazing thing about the modern world is no matter where you start, you can typically find the person within two or three bounces. So, like, if you just reach out to somebody on PitchBook who is an investor and they just seem to be active, period, and you let them know, oh, I do this really difficult kind of hardware, they'll go through their Rolodex, of, and, and you're not a jerk on the call, then they'll go through their Rolodex and be like, oh, yeah, who do I know that does, you know, difficult stuff or puts in more than five million in hardware, da da da. And they'll be like, oh well, you might talk to this person. And then whatever, in two or three bounces you'll get to somebody interesting. Uh, that said, is that the exact fit? You know, they may not be the fit for the stage that you're at or the allocation that you want or what have you, but at least you're kind of in the territory. And then you can kind of move it on from there. Okay, we had room for maybe one more question unless there's zero more questions, which is also fine. Did you want oh. to Oh, a down round is like your valuation ends up being lower in a subsequent round than the previous round, and it means that those people get a much more aggressive share for the num uh, for the money. Uh, but sometimes you need to take a ground a down round because otherwise you just run out of cash, and you generally want to avoid down rounds. I, 
especially for hard sciences and engineering, if you're not if you're not in a situation where you need to capitalize hot, I would recommend to stay as cool as possible, which actually leaves your valuation lower. A lot of people try to do premature valuation optimization to get a really high valuation early. That can set you up to for sure get a down round or for sure fail. Yes? Is that like total market cap you're showing in these uh, charts? Yeah, this is a schematic about just like amount of stuff happening in an industry and total amount of capital and impact on society in all forms. So like, you know, there's horse-drawn carriages and then there was a bunch of them and then there's none, right? And, you know, there was uh, whatever. Uh, for consumer drones, like 15 years ago, there's very few and then there was literally 100 consumer drone companies and now there's just Parrot and DJI. So now we're at the maturity phase, but we're not in the collapse phase for consumer drones. So every industry is somewhere on this chart. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes there's apparent dips, but like you scoot back from it and you're like, yeah, like society wanted a bunch of this for this time period. And then eventually we're like, we're over that now. Flip phones. We're over it now. So, and actually, there's a fold phone now, but I think we're over it. <laughs> okay, that's it. I think you have to make your alpha yes, Thank it. you. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>